the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be starting to look at verse, uh, we're going to begin it in verse 7, Ephesians 5 verses 7 through 14 is where I want to direct your attention, and I think it would behoove us uh, to spend a couple minutes together before we look into God's Word praying. We have needs in the congregation, and we will talk to the Father, our Shepherd, about them together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, uh, this is an assurance that uh, meant a great deal to Fanny Crosby to to be able to write, uh, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight. Uh, And it is uh, a a rapturous thought for us too, a glad and delightful word to to think and to ponder that someday we're going to see our king in all of his beauty and glory. Uh, and we, there's nothing on earth that, will com- that compares to that. There's no joy, there's no pleasure, there's no uh, peace, no contentment, no satisfaction that can even compare with what awaits us. Those who are anticipating seeing the King in whose law we delight. And we're grateful to you for that reminder in, in song that we can sing to one another ab- about. Father, this morning we are grateful to you. Stacy Ferguson is in the hospital and yet she is doing well in recovery from her surgery. Uh, we're grateful to you for uh, the peace and the comfort that you have provided for her. Thank you for those in the congregation who have reached out to her to try to encourage her and, and um, um, remind her of your satisfying love and your daily mercy. Our thoughts are with um, Jenny Hall, who will this week undergo surgery herself. Uh, Father, this world, uh, in this world, Jesus said we have, would have trouble. We have uh, a trouble of all kinds, uh, and it is uh, grievous when trouble affects our body, something that there's no one in this room will be free from these sort of troubles. And yet today, our, our thoughts are with Ginny and the pain that she's experienced over these uh, last uh, weeks and, and months. And we ask, Father, that you would provide relief for her out of your kindness. Uh, it would be um, your mercy. Well, I, I pray for her it, it, this week. She may uh, be encountering fear, and I pray that she would run to Christ when, when chased by fear and find you to be that refuge sure. Father, we're thankful to you. Oh, God, we are grateful to you for bringing Alora to us this morning, that, that she has been uh, uh, healed enough from the illnesses that she brought from Africa to be here among us. Uh, we are delighting to uh, welcome her to the church family, as, as the Petersheims have been uh, so happy to welcome her into their home. Uh, God, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful to uh, Carrie and Anthony and their girls uh, and that we, that Alora would find in us a representative of Jesus Christ, that we would model Christ's love and welcome and encouragement and faithfulness to her. And we pray that she would uh, grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with, with you and with us too in this uh, congregation. Uh, we're grateful to you for the uh, young men and women who have returned from college who are here. Um, Allison and David and Vicki all undergoing uh, uh, transitions into what's next for them. Uh, and uh, Deborah returning to studies we anticipate in the fall. Uh, thank you for the um, 
grace that is evident in their lives and that they accomplished in another year. It's, it's, they have finished it and have uh, succeeded, uh, graduated on the part of Alton and, and David. And, and we're, we're just so thankful to you for your kindness to them. And God, we pray again too that you would enable us, that you would have us, that you would allow us the joy of being sources of encouragement to them and, and uh, that, that we would uh, be faithful in spurring them on toward love and good deeds for Christ's sake. Uh, now, uh, Father, we pray for Hannah Hare, who is in Tennessee this morning serving. Uh, thank you for the work that she's doing in that remote area of uh, the volunteer state that she's there, uh, serving those who are underserved by medical care. And I pray that today Hannah would have the joy of representing Christ well, that she uh, would, would be able to uh, touch people's uh, lives um, with the, the wonder and kindness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Move Hannah the way Jesus was moved with compassion for those who come. Uh, we pray for our brothers and uh, sister who are in Nigeria who will uh, this afternoon in just a few hours begin the return uh, to us. We anticipate welcoming them home back to the States tomorrow. Um, uh, thank you for all the work that they have done. <laughs> You have worked through them, but you have worked in them as well. And God, we pray that there would be fruit in their lives, evident of this opportunity. They thought they were serving Nigerians. They have been served by you in a multitude of ways. Uh, um, Cause this experience to flourish in their lives in godliness and righteousness and goodness. Do that, we pray. Now your word is open before us, and we come before you asking you, our shepherd, to feed us. Uh, You are our master, we ask you to command us. You are our father, we ask that you would um, uh, discipline, disciple, and and guard us today in your word. Do that, we pray, for Christ's sake. And all God's people together said, Amen. Amen. Uh, My illustrious career in interscholastic soccer began when I was in ninth grade and ended my junior year of high school. Um, my high school was small and the team was not uh, large enough. Uh, the team was always looking for players. During my senior year, actually, there were not enough players on the team uh, to make a, a varsity team. They were always looking, and if you were in eighth grade and you wanted to play on the junior varsity team, you could, though you were not qualified, but you could if you passed a physical fitness test. So the fall of my eighth grade year, I decided to try this physical fitness test. I don't remember the specifics, but you had to, in a minute, do a certain amount of sit-ups, in a minute, do a certain amount of squat thrusts, in a minute, do a certain amount of activity. I don't even know what it's called, but there were three lines on the gym floor, and you had to move, cross a certain number of lines in a minute. I don't know what that's called. We did it. I did it. Well, I didn't do it. That's the point. Um... (laughs) The first time I went to take the test, uh, uh, this, the, this, this lying thing was the first thing you had to do, and the uh, athletic director sat there with a stopwatch, and he said, go, and I started, and I did it with all my might, and he said, stop, and I had not even done half, uh, across half of the lines I was supposed to. Hmm. Well, I decided that I was going to work on this, so uh, I went home and uh, decided to practice. Um, I, I measured it out on my deck outside in our backyard, and I put tape lines down and started practicing. 
And I figured out soon enough that you, you can't hop between lines and lines. I had to jump all the way across, back and forth, if I had any chance of making it. And I practiced and practiced. Uh, I, then I moved on to sit-ups and squat thrusts. That was even more a miserable experience. Um, I tried. Uh, I tried. I worked at it. I worked at it. And uh, after a few days, I made no visible progress, so I stopped. I think looking back on the experience, I don't think I even knew how to get ready for the test. I didn't even really understand the level of physical fitness that was required or what it would take for me to achieve it. The standard was too high. I couldn't meet it and I didn't even know how to go about trying to meet the standard properly. I wonder if any of you have thought that way as we have been working uh, through chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. Paul sets very high standards in God's Word for us. Be angry, but don't sin. I did alright with that command this week, except for Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning. Other than that, I got that one down. Only say what is helpful for building others up. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. How how well did you do on that this week? Um, Forgive like Christ did. There should not even be a hint in your life of sexual immorality. Not even a hint. This is a serious list. And it's discouraging too. As we move forward through the book of Ephesians, we're going to come to a paragraph where I think Paul wants to help his readers who are not just discouraged but stuck. They have hit the wall. Um, To hit the wall is is a running term. Uh, Runners who hit the wall are people who, in the middle of a race, their legs just feel incredibly heavy. They have no energy to go on, no desire to go on. And 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 part of running, this is the psychological part of running, is you've got to push your way through the wall. Paul is writing to people who have hit the wall in their spiritual life. Maybe, you, you might be able to hear them say this, Christianity, maybe Christianity doesn't work or I don't know how to do it right. I'm stuck here. I'm stuck in these same sins and I see no progress in my life. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you look at people around you and and you wonder why they're not making the progress that it seems that the Bible says that they ought to. You might not know much about the Bible, but you know, I mean, it calls us to pretty high, high standards. And If you're going to become a follower of Christ, are you going to be stuck like some of the people that you see? If you have had these thoughts run through your mind, I want you to listen carefully as we look at Ephesians 5, verse 7. I'm going to read from verses 7 through 14. Listen to what God's Word says. Therefore, he says, do not be partners with them. We'll talk about the them in a a moment. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible 
For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now these seven verses represent a new section in the book of Ephesians. The division is evident by the use of the word in verse 8 of the word live or walk. Chapters 4 through 6 is how they're divided up by this command. Live. Live in unity, verse 1 of chapter 4. Live in holiness, verse 17 of chapter 4. Live in love, 5-1. Now we have here, live in the light. But the style of this paragraph is different too. Can you pick that up here? Paul changes. Um, he has become, he has been, in the end of chapter 4, very specific about uh, behavior, very specific commands. Uh, put off lying, put off falsehood, tell the truth. Stop stealing, work hard, and give generously. He's been very concrete, very specific. And here he turns, he almost sounds like John a little bit, doesn't he, with this metaphors of light and darkness and live as the children of light and don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He's more metaphorical, it seems. And there's, there's questions about this passage. Some of them are difficult to answer, but still I find here help for those who have hit the wall. How do you respond when you hit the wall? Uh, this morning I want to share with you three words that summarize what you need to do when the speed of your following Christ fades. Here those, the, the first word is the word reminder. Reminder. You need to be reminded. This is the subject of verses 7 through 10. It, it appears from this paragraph and the one that precedes it that the Ephesians are struggling with some sort of sin, some serious sin. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure what Paul is thinking of, but he has seen in the church there are some serious issues in that congregation. And that's why he issues the warnings he does in verses 5 and 6 that we, we talked about last week. Um, you have got to excise immorality, impurity, and greed from you. Uh, again, I don't know specifically what's going on, but Paul has some, some very hard words for them. And then there's this warning in verse 7. It says, do not be partners with them. Now, the them is those who are disobedient up in verse 6. And to partner with someone is to, to share their lifestyle. Don't be partners. Don't share the lifestyle of those who have not obeyed God's command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, just briefly before we go on, maybe your spiritual progress has been slowed to a crawl because of the people that you're partnering with. I have had a number of people say to me, my life didn't really change decisively until I made new friends. Maybe that's part of the problem. Well, Paul, Paul tells them why these partnerships are so dangerous. And, and he tells them that, that they're dangerous because of the radical break they have made with the old life. And he does so with images of darkness and light. Um, he, he's made contrasts like this all the way through the book. If you look at Ephesians, look at the contrast. There's darkness and light here in chapter 5. There's uh, aliens and there's... Uh, um, uh, dearly beloved children, foreigners and, and children. There are people who are dead and people who are alive. He, he makes these contrasts. And here, the image is darkness and light. 
This is the message that's all the way through of the New Testament. When you turn to Jesus Christ, there is a decisive break in your life. It's one of the ways, one of the reasons that the New Testament uses the word repent to become a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the word believe. Often it also uses the word repent to change your mind. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you change your mind about sin. You recognize its deadly nature and what it will eternally cost you. You change your mind about Jesus Christ and you recognize that His death on the cross for you was not just a historical event. His death on the cross, not just a history moment, but something that is relevant and applicatory to your life. It becomes an object of your trust. Um, It's not difficult to understand what Paul is talking here about these images of darkness and light. Darkness is an image in the Bible that's associated with sin, being alienated from God. And those who engage in the behaviors that Paul condemns in chapter 4 and 5 are darkness. That's a, they're not just walking in darkness. Verse 8 says, you were once darkness. It was so pervasive. You were darkness. Light here is, uh, uh, the Bible tells us over and over again that God is light. And those who are associated with God walk in the light. They are light, Paul says here in verse 8, in the Lord because of their association with Christ. Paul says, brothers and sisters, remember here that if, that, um, uh, if you're giving up in following Christ, if you are so discouraged that you don't want to go on, if you're hitting the wall, you have got to remember that there has been a fundamental change in your life. You are not once what you once were. Things are different for you. Instead of walking in darkness, verse 9, you walk in goodness and righteousness and truth. Those are three words I think summarize chapters 4. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Uh, you have a new goal if you're a, a, a walking, if you're a follower of Christ. Your new goal is to find out what pleases the Lord. Sometimes the Bible speaks directly to an issue. Uh, often the Bible speaks directly to an issue. We know exactly what to do in certain circumstances because there is a chapter and verse that tell us specifically what to do. Sometimes, though, it, the Bible is not as specific as we want. So what, what do we do in those circumstances? We use the principles of Scripture to find out what pleases the Lord. We have no direct command, but we're so intent on living in the light and following the Lord and, and, and uh, imitating Jesus Christ that we're going to find out. I don't have a verse, but I'm going to find out what, what the Bible might say to this issue. This section of the Scriptures is one of the places where the Bible tells us Actually, where in the Bible we're confronted with two seemingly contradictory realities. Two, two things that the Bible affirms, but they, they seem to contradict. On the one hand, the Bible tells us repeatedly that the gospel makes a difference. It changes how you live. Always, without exception, the gospel truly uh, believed will transform a life. Always. If someone moves from darkness to light, or if someone was dead and is now alive, you can't help but notice the change. This this truism is actually the basis for Paul's argument. If you're in Christ, things are different. 
Now, this affirmation of the Bible presses us on how to respond to situations where there's no life change. I heard an illustration or a, a, a good example of this, I think, recently from D.A. Carson. He said, imagine that you bring your grandson to an event at church when he's eight years old. VBS or some Sunday school outreach or Awana. He's eight years old and he responds to the gospel and he believes. That is great. When he was eight years old, he did that. But since he has been 14 years old, he has led the life of a debauched pagan. Is he really a Christian? I don't think it's sufficient at this point in time to take the bumper sticker statement, once saved, always saved, and apply to his life and walk on with glad confidence that uh, uh, he is genuinely a follower of Christ. The best that can be said, and I'm not his judge, that boy's judge, and you're not that boy's judge either, the best that can be said about him is, I don't know, there is no evidence in his life right now that he's genuinely a follower of Christ. Which, as an aside, by the way, is a reminder to us of why it's so crucial to become a part of the congregation, a congregation, for the assurance of it. We're going to vote this afternoon in our congregational meeting on on welcoming a new member into our church. And we do so, when we do so, it's an affirmation that we believe there is evidence of grace in that person's life. The elders have sat down and we have uh, uh, had a conversation with, uh, well, this afternoon, he won't mind, too bad, Ben, we're, Ben Henson, we're going to vote into membership. Okay, thank you, Ben, for giving me permission to blaspheme your name. So, Ben was interviewed by the elders and we spoke to him about the role of the gospel in his life. And the elders present Ben to you with as much assurance as we possibly can have. We believe that Ben is a follower of Christ. And the congregation, by voting to welcoming, welcome him in, will say, yes, we see grace in Ben's life. We believe that Ben is genuinely a follower of Christ, and we will welcome him into our church fellowship. If you don't, uh, if you disassociate yourself with the congregation, if you're not a part of a church, you don't have that assurance that comes from other followers of Christ who say to you, yes, we see evidences of grace in your life. So on the one hand, the Bible says this. The Bible says the gospel transforms a life. That is true. But on the other hand, the Bible describes God's people sometimes as men and women who are involved in some pretty serious sin. Uh, if you scan through the New Testament, you'll find Christians, uh, the people the apostle addresses as believers, who are engaged in adultery and prostitution and drunkenness and backbiting and divisiveness and incest and uncontrolled anger and hypocrisy. There is a host of sins that believers in the New Testament are engaged in that are guaranteed to make you lose your running in the Elder of the Year trophy contest. The Bible affirms both of these situations. And one of the ways that it addresses believers who are living in darkness is by warning them. Like it does in Ephesians 5, verses 7 through 9. The warning is, uh, there is a difference between what you claim to believe and how you are living, and you have got to deal with the contradiction. It is, it is not okay for there to be such a contradiction between what you say you believe and how you live. And these warnings in this passage are not meant to drive you to despair. 
They're not meant to make you question all the time, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I really saved? They're meant to say, if there's a distinction between how you live and what you claim to believe, fix it. Change it. Change what you believe or deny what you think, uh, change how you live or deny what you claim to believe. That contradiction cannot stand. That's what Paul is reminding them of. You cannot tolerate this contradiction. As, as we read chapters 4 and 5, do not tolerate these things in your life. Do you let any of them slip by in your life? Uh, anger, lying, impurity, greed. You need a reminder. There has been a decisive break from darkness to light. But there's something else that you may need here if you've hit the wall this morning. A second word that I want to remind you of, and this is the word exposure. Exposure. Oh, exposure is not a pleasant word, is it? But it's, it's right in the text. In verses 11 through 13, he talks about exposure. Let's look at verse 11 again, as a matter of fact. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, here is an issue that we come across immediately in the text. What or who are we exposing? Whose deeds are we supposed to expose? On the one hand, some people say that what Paul is talking about here is he's speaking of the church's role in the culture. Followers of Jesus Christ speak about the unfruitful deeds of darkness and we proclaim to our culture uh, these dark deeds that are bringing ruin upon our society, upon our world. That, that we're exposing the dark deeds of the world. Uh, I'll give you an illustration of this. Um, recently, actually, as a matter of fact, this week, the House of Representatives voted, some of you heard perhaps about this, the House of Representatives voted on a bill that would ban uh, abortion on the basis of sex selection. I'm not sure how aware you are of this being an issue, but it is a huge national, uh, rather international uh, issue. Uh, it is very common in uh, countries such as China and India for uh, p- women, uh, uh, husbands and wives, to go to abortion clinics and have uh, fetuses, babies that are girls, aborted. Uh, there's a, prefer- a huge preference in those cultures for male children. Uh, estimates now that I uh, have heard, there are as many as 200 million missing girls in China and India because of this practice, uh, which means there are millions of Chinese and Indian young men who have no hope of ever getting married, ever finding a wife. It's a huge issue. Well, for a long time, I have heard about this issue from those who are pro-life, uh, that it's an issue uh, mostly, uh, so we think the issue has been over there, right? Well, this week, a pro-life organization released two Planned Parenthood videos. They were filmed surreptitiously. Uh, in a Planned Parenthood clinic in the United States of a woman who went to an abortion clinic and she said very specifically to the uh, attendant there at the Planned Parenthood clinic, I want to abort my baby because it's a girl and I want to have a boy and not a girl. And they said, fine, not a problem. There actually have been done statistic analysis in the United States of how common is sex selection abortion in the United States. 
Compared to the problem in China and India, it is not a, a significant problem. But it's still immoral. It's still wrong. Uh, and I have heard of this issue for a long time. There have been pro-life advocates who, who decry this. <laughs> this kind of puts um, pro-choice feminists in an awkward position, doesn't it? In the name of women's rights, they say uh, abortion should be allowed at any time for any reason. Uh, yet when there are 200, missing, 200 million missing women in the world, it puts you in a bit of an awkward position when you're defending women, right? Hmm. I, actually, I think it shows the bankruptcy of their abortion advocacy. Uh, this is, though, just one issue of how followers of Christ expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. I think that's true, that's good, that's right, I'm pleased that there are people who are doing that, but I don't think that that's what this passage is talking about. I think that Paul here is writing about exposing the deeds, the dark deeds, done inside the church among the brothers and sisters. They're the ones who are to be exposed. Now, the reason I think that is because the number of times that Paul uses this verb, expose, to talk about how members of a congregation should respond to community, uh, to sin inside of the community. He uses the word expose frequently for this. How does a church deal with men and women who are in the church who claim to be followers of Christ but are not living like followers of Christ? Paul says you expose them. Matthew 18.15 Uh, Paul got the idea from Jesus because Matthew 18.15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. That is, expose him to himself just between the two of you. Um, Verse 11 reminds us how the church is to respond to those who claim to be believers but who are embracing the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The process in verse 11 is not... um, opened up here. It just uses the word expose. There are stages and steps elaborated in other parts of the Bible. Different ways, different means, different things were to do. Sometimes, Paul says, we're to restore gently. Galatians 6. It's a beautiful image. If someone is overtaken in a sin, Paul says, you who are mature should restore them gently. Sometimes, it's outright rebuke. Ha <laughs> 1 Timothy 5 and 6 talk about rebuking openly elders. Um, In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. In different ways, with different people, depending on the different situation and the different uh, things that are going on, we intervene, we expose. That's what a loving community does to those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but who are walking in unfruitful deeds of darkness. This passage speaks to our corporate responsibility, but I think the clearest point of application is the call issued in this passage to place yourself under the care of men and women who have the courage to expose you. This is one of the reasons, again, why you place yourself under the care of a congregation. You say to a group of followers of Jesus, you say, I need you to help me. I need you at times to warn me. I need you at times to encourage me. I need you at times to uh, rebuke me and admonish me. I need the exposure that comes from being cared by a group, a fellow group of followers of Jesus Christ. 
Marshall Shelley once uh, wrote about an episode that took place. A young man named Marty was an attorney. Marty was a lawyer, and he used to work out at a gym, and while he was working out at the gym, he met an older man whose name was Vernon. Marty, I don't think, immediately knew this, uh, but Vernon was the president of Denver Seminary. He was a pastor, a counselor, a teacher. And uh, as Marty and Vernon got to know one another, uh, Marty said to, to Vernon, he started to talk about his marriage. His marriage was, was really falling apart. Uh, so, um, and his wife actually wanted to divorce him. So he talked to Vernon, and as they, they discussed things, Vernon said, here, why don't you get out a piece of paper and a pencil, and let's make up a list of your options, options that you can, can things you can do in this situation, um, what, you, what you can do. Number one, stay in the marriage. All right, good. Number two, separate temporarily. It's on the list. Number three, divorce. One of his options. Uh, then uh, Vernon knew how desperate Marty was, so Vernon uh, said to him, "All right, let's add number four here. You got. We're not done yet. Number four, uh, suicide." And of course, Vernon said, very matter-of-factly, "There's always murder." Number five. <laughs> Marty said, "What?" <laughs> Vernon said, uh, "Actually, Marty said to him, That's, that, I have never thought of that. I have never thought of that.'" And Vernon said, "Now, Marty." You're a defense lawyer. You spend a lot of time in a court. You tell me that has never crossed your mind that you couldn't find someone who'd be willing to take care of your wife for you? Marty said, I knew I was condemned when a name came to my mind almost immediately. (laughs) Write it down, Vernon said. Write it down. Vernon was talking to Marty. He said, now, Marty, look at this list. As Christians, we can agree that murder is not a viable choice, is it? No. Can we agree also that for Christians, self-murder or suicide is not a viable choice either? It's not. So they went on to talk about the Christian alternatives. What does a Christian do in those situations? The, the whole episode so shook Marty that he thought about it a year later, listen, or ten years later. What, this is what he said. I was in dire need of a serious dose of reality, and Vernon knew exactly how to deliver it. Expose. Who do you talk to about your anger, your immorality, your, your greed, Some of you read sections of of the scriptures like chapters 4 and 5 and you say to God, I understand God, you have high standards, but you haven't given me the resources to obey these commands. These are just too hard. I can't be holy like this. But I wonder if God has provided the resources and you have not chosen to use them. You have to deal with the contradiction between what you claim and how you live. And the only way you may actually succeed in doing so is by placing yourself under the care of someone else who has the power and authority in your life to expose you to yourself often. Now, if I were sitting where you were and I was hearing me say this, I would be thinking to myself, ha, no way. That is too embarrassing. I keep my problems to myself, frankly. I don't want to. I will not talk to anyone about the junk in my life. This is the route, though, that the Bible tells us to travel. 
This is the road between unfruitful deeds of darkness and walking in the light. It's, it's embarrassing. It's shameful to be exposed. But that's not surprising for us, though, is it, those who know the Gospel? Because the Gospel itself is a story about shame. It's a story about Christ's shame. He was despised. He was rejected. He was stripped naked and hung for all to see. He experienced the sort of shame that destroyed him. It cost him his life. He did it so that you could bear not that sort of shame, but this sort of shame. This sort of shame that will not destroy you, but that will deliver you. He experienced the shame that killed him so that this shame that Paul is talking about here, this exposure will bring you life. Now, how do you start building a sort of relationship that will bring this sort of exposure that you desperately need? Here's a very simple suggestion. There is certainly more involved in this, but uh, for the sake of time, I'll just mention this this suggestion here. Um, Ask somebody, start with with praying. Ask somebody after church today how you can pray for them. And, And don't take, don't let them get away by saying, oh, no special way, you know, just pray for me. Don't let them do that. Ask them how you can pray. How are you going to apply what what Pastor just said this morning? How how are you going to do that? I'll pray for you concerning that. That would be a good question. Verse 12 tells us this sort of exposure is necessary because they're shameful things. They're shameful things, so shameful that they they, uh, uh, don't even make for the subject of conversation. Don't talk about them. Expose them. don't, talking about, don't talk about them and exposing them are different things, obviously, as he writes. And then verse 13 offers us this promise. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. That is, when you experience this sort of exposure, when it is done for loving purposes by people who care for you, there is more light. There is more light in your life. You move from darkness to light. Now, there's one more word that I want to talk about this morning before we finish, and we'll just do this briefly, and the word is awakening, awakening. Verse 14. Paul brings this section to a close by quoting a hymn. Um, we don't have the uh, hymn text anywhere, but apparently it was an early Christian hymn. It seems to be a conversion song, a song that the, that the congregation would sing to people as, as inviting them to, to come to Christ. Um, we sing songs like that. We sang a couple weeks ago, Come ye sinners, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. We sing songs like that. And the reason we sing songs like that is to remind us where we came from And the songs are meant to have this awakening power. Yes, I was weak and wounded, sick and sore, but now I have found uh, 10,000 charms in the arms of my dear Savior. That's why we sing those songs. That's probably why the church in Ephesus sang this song. It was a song that was meant to be sung to unbelievers, but it, it, it encouraged the whole congregation, yes, I once was asleep and now I'm awake. I once was dead and now I'm alive. And Christ shines through the Gospel. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesians in the pews and he's saying to them, get up, get up, wake up. 
to, to those sins that you are living in that are darkness that are going to destroy you. Wake up. And Paul, and, and through the Word, by the Spirit, Scripture says to you who are sitting here in the pews at Grace, wake up. Get up. Don't engage in these things that Paul has unfolded for us that are so damaging. Um, to you who are discouraged by your failures, wake up. For Christ's sake, wake up. And the promise is that the light of Christ's presence, the brightness of His glory, the, the brightness of His glory of Him who calls you out of darkness into light will shine brighter and brighter in your life. Did you see the article last week in the newspaper about the, uh, the young man who runs ultra-marathons? I read it. it was a, uh, ironically, it was a short article. Um, his name is uh, Jason Lance. Jason Lance, um, he recently won a 100-mile race in Virginia. Start running early in the morning, well, middle of the night, and you run almost until midnight, and you run 100 miles. Um, I read this article, and I thought to myself, this, this activity does not interest me. I try not to run distances that will take me almost two hours to drive. That's one of my principles. I hope you don't read Ephesians like I read that article. This doesn't interest me. This is impossible. No chance. Uh, It's too high a standard. If you're tempted to read Ephesians that way, you should heed Paul's exhortation. Live as children of the light. Come out of the deeds of darkness into the place where Christ is shining. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that there is a race set out before us which the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance. It's not a sprint, Father. It's it's a long race. And, and I'm, I come before you this morning on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room who feel keenly today running that race. They, they, they are facing a serious uphill climb. Uh, they, they don't have any strength. They have a rock in their shoe, no water in their uh, bottle. Uh, they're, they're tired and discouraged. Father, Paul lays out for this, this, this possibility. W- would you help us as a congregation to encourage weary runners in our church that we might um, graciously, patiently, faithfully expose them so that they might experience the joy that it's akin to waking up to rising from the dead, that they might see again in a new and afresh the, the glorious light of Christ. Would you, would you work in our church that we would be that way? That, that we would be a congregation of, of people who, who care and who disciple and who encourage and sometimes admonish one another? We want to, leave, we want to lead holy lives because uh, um, we want to walk in the light because you are light We need courage and we need compassion to do that. Provide those for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.